Hello, and welcome to episode 6 of the Desert Island Investor Podcast. I'm rowing myself to the mainland for the weekend, because some bloke washed up on the beach, and Mark wants to talk shop with him about investing. We've only got two chairs, so I've left them to it. Anyway, I hope you enjoy Mark's interview with our first guest castaway, investment consultant, podcaster and stock market legend, Mr. Jeremy McEwen. Is that a shark? Jeremy, thank you for joining me. For those that don't know know you, uh, and for the benefit of our listeners, can you give some details as to your background? Well, yeah. Hi, uh, hi, markets. Uh, it's lovely to be cast away with you. Um, I've been working in financial markets pretty well all my career. Um, I I'm just turned sixty three, and I've retired from full time work. Um, but I started out in the early 80s um, and um, retired, as I said, from full-time employment just before just before lockdown. And today um, I work as a consultant uh, for a couple of city firms. And I guess I've evolved into being a bit of a being a bit of a pluralist. Um, I write a blog um, which is called Hypernormal Times which is really about the macro backdrop, what's going on in the world, and particularly as it relates to how you should think about the world, perhaps, or how I think about the world, at least, from as far as it pertains to investment and what what to do with your pension or ISA and how to think about it. Um, and as a bit of a lockdown hobby interest, um, having become sort of quite addicted to listening to podcasts uh, during lockdown, I decided, decided to launch my own podcast um, series, which I called In the Company of Mavericks. And it's a series that I've developed over the last 18 months, couple of years, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs and founders of companies in the UK who have found themselves listed on AIM or the full market and are typically the main their personalities or their it's their um, their character characters that are the driving force behind some of the companies some of the most the most successful companies in um, in the listed space have people who think and do things a bit differently and that's what I wanted to focus on um, I just think it's um, an area that is professional investors and working with professional investors and listed companies as a professional, you get to meet these characters. And I'm thinking of people like Mike Ashley, um, Tim Martin of Weatherspoon, people who um, have a view about how things should be done and they go and do it. And um, those are two very successful examples. Um, but they're, treated by 
mainstream media by the rest of the world as being outsiders and people um, and are often criticized for being different rather than people focusing on the fact that by doing something different, it gives you the ability to be very successful. Um, so you've had a career of you know you know forty years within like the, the city. Has as the the profile of your roles across that t- that time changed a lot, Jeremy? Um, not a lot. Um, I started work on the, but I, I started out back in the very early in the early eighties, nineteen eighty two, I think it was, on the what we what was on the buy side as a fund manager, uh, and moved into the sell side as a as an institutional broker and corporate broker in the um, late, about 1986, so a few years later. So very early on, I was on the buy side as working for uh, for fund, uh, fund management organizations. Uh, started out not a million miles from where you are, Mark, is Barn, in, the, in, the, in the lovely town of Barnsley in South Yorkshire. Oh, that's way, that's, that's a long way away from us. That's on the <laughs> wrong side of the Pounds there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, so I was, um, I actually started out in 1982, I think it was, as a trainee investment analyst for South Yorkshire County Council Pension Fund, situated in the town of Barnsley, South Yorkshire. Yeah. Uh, but, oh, yeah, so over that, 35 odd years um i worked mainly on the sell side um mainly working in um small cap broking uh so i was basically front of house talking to investors uh talking to small cap fund managers um institutional fund managers about um investment ideas introducing them to companies and as a result of that came into contact with the management teams of lots of smaller companies. It's involved in quite a lot of transactions. You know, we have, did a lot of IPOs, uh, did a lot of secondary fundraisings. So, yeah, that was, that was typically um, uh, typically what I did. Mm. Sounds like there were a lot of lunches involved there, Jeremy, over, the, over those years. There was a lot of drinking early on uh, yeah. back in the day, uh, a lot of um, – uh, quite a lot of lunches and um, – yeah, and I think probably, you know, there were, there were um, you know, I, I mainly worked for local brokers in London, um, but I found myself in early 2000, 2001, running a team at Merrill Lynch. Um, this is sort of pre-global financial crisis. This was the era of, you know, when the global bond markets and the people who operated in global bond markets were considered to be the masters of the universe. Um, and, you know, financial markets ruled, almost seemed to rule the politicians. You know, I think it was one of Clinton's guys who said if he came back, um, he, you know, he wanted to become the bond market because, mm. um, you know, because, um, because of the power they had on uh, the way the world worked. Mm. So, that was um I'm mentioning that because that was a you know it did that was a time when you just felt like the the world was at your door working in financial markets and I'm not saying that's right or wrong um but it was a thing and the world's changed significantly in the over the last 20 odd years or so because um well I think the GFC the global financial crisis neutered 
the um, the banking system to a certain extent, and um, you know things are, things are different. But yeah, yeah, it was um, privilege. I think is um, is 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 the way the word I'd use in yes. terms of working with and dealing with very clever people, incredibly clever people, um, in and um, both people who were colleagues, who were peers, competitors, but people who were clients, who were investors. I mean, incredibly hardworking, uh, very diligent, very passionate investors, all shapes and sizes, all ways of doing things, all different strategies. Uh, for quite complex um, in terms of a, an ecosystem, an environment, but also the management teams, you know, the having a good look at the way these people operate under extreme pressure at times because, you know, doing an IPO of your business, uh, raising money in a difficult market or raising money at any time, you know, um, is stressful and you get to see people operating under pressure and that's um, instructive. And yeah. You learn, you can learn a lot. There but must yeah. have been a lot of testosterone flying around there. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Um, certainly back in the old days, you know, I joined the city pre big bang. It, you know, um, the stock market was more, had more, it was more like an exclusive members club mm. than a, than a what we would know as, as a financial market today. Um, and there was, you know, there were gentlemen's hours um, and you had to pay fixed commission. You know, there was, it was, it was, it was, it was a fixed market. So, you know, you know um, the Thatcher revolution, the big bang of 86, you know, people talk a lot about, what she did to the unions and breaking breaking up closed shops, and you know what she and Murdoch did to the print unions, for example, which were our neighbours, you know, in Fleet Street in the old days in the city. But she bust up the stock exchange as well, and they were both very important things to do. So that's a little bit about your your background. I just want to steer the conversation now to your own personal investing, uh, and I know these things can be multi layered, but can you detail your kind of strategy or framework that you work to yeah um i'm not sure it's that well constructed well, it's um, a bit loose it, then is it it's, it's probably better constructed than it has been historically so i've always invested or you know, my own money um and i suppose gradually became more serious about it and more structured in how i thought about it and operated as i grew older um, you know, and along the way, set up ISAs and man- started managing my own uh, pension about a decade ago. And but it was sort of an evolution over quite a long period of my career where I th- sort of picked up. You know, I met, got to know fund managers who you know meet a lot of fund managers, and you just sit in a lot of meetings and you see a lot of the questions that fund managers ask of companies or of analysts or of, you know, the way they look at the world. And you go, yeah, actually I'd put my money with him or her and maybe I wouldn't with them. And likewise with companies, you know, sometimes there were, you know, increasingly through the period I worked, there were more and more regulations and you had to, which you had to comply with regarding conflicts of interest. But so, that often defined which companies 
I could buy or couldn't buy. But I, so it was sort of piecemeal to start with. Um, and I think what really started focusing my mind um, on um, how I should structure my thinking about it is was when after I retired I mean I I stopped full-time work a week before the world went into lockdown and um so the um I was sort of left um with my little pot of money and a, a sort of an eclectic mix of investments and I just thought well I need to sort of do what you asked me about, which probably I should have done years before, and actually just sit down and think <clears throat> what it is, why, why, am I, why am I doing this, and what do I want to achieve by it? So I wrote myself a little um, memo during the early stages of lockdown, and I tried to formulate um, 10 lessons from the sort of career I'd had about how to invest my money or how to invest money and um, they were you know the types of companies to look for the um, but also things like um, have exposure I think lesson number one this was um, bear in mind this was middle of 2020 was have exposure to real assets as well as equities and um, you know the um uh, I was. I've never. Don't. I mean, I've owned, owned fixed income securities in my time, but I don't think I've ever owned a government bond, and I don't think I ever will. And um, I. But obviously, if you want to preserve wealth, um, particularly as you become older, um, you don't want excessive volatility. Um, and because of my background in smaller listed companies, although over time, smaller listed companies offer you the highest prospective return, they also offer you, they're also volatile. They're also riskier in a volatility sense. Um, and the, you know, having, being able to tolerate volatility if you're, is more difficult if you want to you're coming to the stage where you might want to depend more on your investments just on that you know on the motivation for investing what was the i mean my my first motivation for investing was to was 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 to get out of the world of work as quickly as possible if i'm being honest with you you know i mean i think i I was still doing the sandwich run in the office when i was thinking about retiring that was the kind of (laughs) you know I'm, i'm 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 being have to get to this fixed place, you know, five days a week, and be instructed what to do. There must be something. So, where did you uh, get the? I know you're asking me the questions, but where did yeah. you get the bug from in your environment? To, where did you get the idea of well, investing in companies? In it, well, the first thing was it was the you know the, the Thatcher privatizations. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And I'd always had like a, a, as a schoolboy, it's a strange kind of unconventional interest that I was reading the financial papers for some reason. I don't know why, because I'd not no background in any kind of investing or. Um, so you cut the coupons out of yes, the paper to buy the it. shares in British yeah, Gas. And that's British it. I, I think the yeah. first one was actually British Telegram at eighteen, yeah. and that really was a, a gateway. And then they were. They were I, I think I made five thousand pounds from the privatisation, or maybe somewhere between five and ten thousand pounds. 
And that was a lot of money. Yeah, that was yes. That was a year's yeah. salary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and 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 they were they were priced to promote sure ownership, sure. weren't they? They were, yeah. they were they were yeah. they were priced for people to think, hey, let's have a look at this. And we did do. And we 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 developed into into other things, and it became a, a a lifelong interest. But did you you know was there a motivation for you? Was there a, a goal for to, to get in, in involved in investing yourself? Um, or was it just a case of I, I should put some money away for the future? A general kind of that kind of mindset. Well, my, like you, my first investment was direct investment. I mean, I'd, uh, yeah, my first direct investment was the Thatcher privatizations, the, mm. the water companies, BT, British Telecom, British Gas. And um, I did it because everyone else was doing it. I was, it was the world I was living and working in. And I was, um, working for a an investment department of an insurance company at the time and it was it was extra spending money you know i was making i wasn't trading but i wasn't holding these investments i didn't have the idea that i'd own bt shares or british telecom shares for the rest of my life at that stage uh it was a um it was a way of earning a bit of uh, earning a bit more money um and you know, if I think back to a few years after that, and sort of before Big Bang, um, the um, uh, I was working when I first started working in stockbroking business. You know, we had things like the you know there were many you know, insider dealing wasn't a thing, uh, wasn't wasn't a criminal offence uh, until Big Bang. And the stock exchange was a club, and being part of that club meant you had access to the information that companies revealed. You had um, you got the information before the rest of the world, and people had to pay a fixed commission to get access to the stock market. I mean, it seems incredible, but that was you know only in whatever it was forty odd years ago. Um, and but they also had this thing called. Um, the account period, a two-week trading period, where it took two any trade within that period was settled um, the following week. So you had a two-week trading period, the account, where if you bought shares day one of that account, uh, any time in the following two-week period, you could settle in the account without putting any money up. So if your shares went up. You could you closed within the account, and they just sent you a check. If the shares went down, you had to pay the difference. As a member of the stock exchange, you 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 got you had a. It was incredible, you know. <laughs> I remember as a young sort of uh, a young broker, you know, I had in the account positions in stocks. I mean, horrendously risk, uh, horrendously risky. Um, that it, that there was no way I could afford to settle. I would have to no way, <laughs> and oh, I wasn't alone. Everyone yeah, was like that. Yeah, I mean, and it was just that was the accepted practice. You had to get it right then, didn't you? Well, you, yeah, you had to know. It taught you about risk tolerance, I guess, but the risks were certainly asymmetric in your favour in a way that betting on the horses wasn't. 
So would you say it's a more of a level, uh, you know, a more of a level playing field between private investors and the oh, the massive city? now, yeah, yeah, massively. And um, one of the reasons I did the podcast and wrote, started writing the blog, I mean, not not in a preachy sense of duty or anything like that, but you know, um, I mean, the um, is the I think there is a healthy resurgence of private retail investing activity in the UK, largely driven by the greater available. It's cheaper to trade. It's cheaper to buy and sell shares. And the information is available. You know, they've got this thing called the internet and it's pretty amazing and it's instantaneous and it levels the playing field. Now, professional investors get the best of the best. You know, a Bloomberg terminal is very expensive, but it's very good. And most retail investors can't afford one. Um, uh, and But um, one of the things that, as I said earlier, one of the things that professional investors get is access to management. Now, the internet levels that playing field too. So, you know, we can have webinars and you know, there are platforms that where company managements can meet any investor and post covid uh management teams spend more time to doing zoom calls or their equivalent than they ever did before and i think that's a good thing because we can all go and if not watch it live certainly watch a recording of a results presentation but these characters you know people entrepreneurs people who solve problems in the commercial in the real world and they look at the world differently and they back themselves to do it better um they you might be able to read about them you might be able to get the the numbers about their business the results read the report and accounts but you can't get inside their head you can't chat to them so hence the reason i did the podcast you know because these people i think have got are interesting and if you're going to be a conviction long-term investor in say, let's take Burford Capital, you know, uh, a business that's quite complicated. It's a bit opaque by the nature of what they do. It's a lit- it's the pioneer in litigation finance. But if you don't know Chris Bogart, who's the founder of uh, Burford Capital, it was his idea, and you don't know his origin story and why he's committed to it and how what his vision of the future is, you won't get the conviction to stay in Burford Capital when things get tough when the shares go down and there's the things that, and hold, you know, if you, you want to be a serious long-term investor in equities, you've got to develop conviction, back yourself and hold it. And you've got to know, you've got to, you know, have the, the balls to add to it when things get tough or at least hold on to it in the knowledge or in, if, if you think the, the investment case hasn't changed and to do that is sounds easy but it's actually very difficult uh so um that's that's the reason why i launched the podcast series and because i think i mean it sounds very grand but it kind of democratizes it it spreads the availability of these people insights into what makes them tick to anyone who wants to listen to it yeah, it's not a, a cosy little club now, is it? Investors, you know, there's there's lots of us out there, or it's within the the realms of you know most people to have some kind of an investment. 
Yeah, I mean, when you were approaching the island, I thought I'll come and give you a hand, but you know, you're cutting through the waves maj- majestically <laughs> uh, because you're a very accomplished swimmer and you were once uh, an Olympic hopeful. And it was this that um, led to you going to the United States, and we'll, we'll just come on to that in a little, a little while. But just regarding the swimming, and it might be a little bit of a stretch, but you know, you've spent countless hours in that pool pushing off that wall. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Has that given you any transferable skills? You know, you've spent a lot of time doing this, but in any way, you know, is it perhaps, you know, working towards a goal or perfecting a technique or dedication to a task or just do it? Sometimes you've got to do things that you don't want to do every day. I'm just wondering, you know, have you been able to use that? Or just being thoroughly boring. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know, maybe a bit of all of the above. Um, uh, I think... I mean, maybe, I mean, what it has done, what that period did give me was a real sense of the benefits of exercise, both for physical and mental health, that I don't think I really appreciated until really quite recently, I within the last 10 years or so. Um, because I always, you know, I think over, um, yeah, because I swam so much as a kid and we were doing you know, sometimes we were swimming, you know, up to 10K a day, you know, in the pool. I mean, it's a lot of lengths of a pool. Um, not every day, but, you know, up to that amount. I mean, and when when it came to doing cross-country at school, I just kept going. I wasn't really interested in cross-country, but I used to, I found myself winning because um, it just kept going. And because I'd got a stronger heart and lungs than anybody else because of what I was doing um and it it sort of took it for granted and you know when I stopped swimming I took up running I ran I run several marathons done London Marathon several times run the New York Marathon and and I sort of toned that down a bit and the um I I don't run regularly anymore but I exercise a lot I still swim I started I do outdoor um, open water swimming and I um, I, I spend more time, I think, than most people um, s- sort of exercising. Um, and the reason is that um, what I noticed, I think, is when I was um, when I was swimming at when I was at school or at university, and I was swimming probably did most most um, uh, concentrated form of swim training in the three years I was at university in the States. Um, I was contracted to swim for them. And so I had to, you know, it was, and it was pretty intense. But what I noticed was that the more I swam, the more time I spent exercising, moving my body, the easier I found my studies. And I always thought, well, and the better I did in exams. And when the, so in the, there's four quarters, four academic quarters in the Ameri- in in the U.S. education uh, higher education system, and swimming is takes up two quarters, and the other two quarters you don't have you have to keep fit, but you don't have to, there's no competition, so you, it's, there's less less training. But I always did better in the the quarters where I, where I was swimming sometimes four hours a day, most days four hours a day, uh, you know, and. I up until that point, I always thought, well, the being um, 
it's sense of discipline. You're you're better organised because you've got to get up. You've got to you've got to go to practice. You've got to train. You go to your lectures. You do this. You eat properly. You go back, you know, and you get to sleep on time. And you because you've got to do it again the next day. But it, but it's um, and I think there is an element to that. But I think there's a direct relationship. Not just we all know that if you exercise more, you know, there are physical benefits. You're stronger. You can run for longer. You, you can run for that bus and all that sort of stuff. Or you can walk upstairs. It's easier to walk upstairs, all that sort of stuff. But I think it's a direct impact on your mental health and not just feeling good about yourself because you've done this exercise. I think there's a direct relationship between movement, physical movement, whether you, of any type, physical activity, and the stimulation of your brain and your ability, your mental acuity. And, you know, I've done some sort of desktop research on this. And, you know, there's, a lot, there's quite a lot of evidence out there. And, you know, the, um, the, that this is the case. Um, and I think it's um, not particularly well understood. But the only reason we have a brain is we can move, is because we can move. If we didn't move, we wouldn't have need a brain. Incident. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, no. you've motivated me. After this podcast, I'm definitely going <laughs> I'm definitely going for a run across the beach. All right. Yeah, so you're very lucky. Yeah. So, you know, when I was a, a teenager and I was um watching things like the A team and uh you know uh, Dukes of Hazard, you you were out in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. So, you know, the world was a bigger place back back then. You know, we didn't have rolling news and, and the internet. You know, was it a massive culture shock? And I'm just thinking, you know, we, it's stereotypically we still have the US out as more dynamic and go get it across the Atlantic. Well, do you, have you found that, you know, part of that was that influences, was it, it imparted onto you? Yeah, well, it was certainly a very different world back then. Um, communications were very different, um, way too expensive to ever think about phoning home. Um, there was no internet, of course, no WhatsApp. So I used to write to friends and family back home by by letter, by airmail. Uh, and yeah, at times you sort of lived your life, you know, from one letter to the next, you know, it was, uh, but um, so yeah, very different. Um, never been to the States. I was 18, uh, traveled around Europe, but I'd, and I'd um, been to a lot of different European countries through swimming as much as anything else. Uh, but I'd never been to the States before. And uh, yeah, it was a huge culture shock. Um, I mean, not least just the standard of living, you know, um, I was back in those days. Um, if you went, if you qualified to go to a university, you got a full grant. Uh, so I got a, I got paid by the UK government in terms of a grant and I got a full scholarship from the university, uh, from Georgia state, um, because I, because of my swimming and, um, it was uh, live like a king, you know. Mm. It was, uh, and um, but yeah, you're right. The American attitude uh, is very competitive, and you know, I went into a world where, yeah, I mean, as an 18 year old, I was didn't really think of it this way, but I was contractually obligated to go to practice and swim for the for the university. They were paying for my education uh, because they thought I would add to their um, athletics program. Um, and, you know, just take university athletics, the NCAA, you know, that's, it's, 
in those days, it you know, was pre-premiership, I would guess the revenue generated by the NCAA, you know, bear in mind, university football and basketball are, you know, they, they have, you know, huge stadia for both sports. They're televised matches. They generate revenue. These universities are very wealthy due to their sporting um, uh, program, their athletic programs. You know, so it was, you know, in a very real sense, although swimming's, you know, not a revenue generating sport, uh, the NCAA is set up so that all the money generated from the big programs, football, basketball, baseball, to a certain extent, um, has to go back into the athletics program of that university. That's what the rules were in those days. Hence the reason people who were doing the minority sports, um, such as us swimmers, um, we got paid to do paid to swim. I'm well, not paid to swim directly, but we had our education expenses covered. Um, and, um, so it was, and the Americans love to make their sports competitive. So, you know, in up until that moment, swimming in, even if you swim for a club, you're really swimming for yourself. You know, it's your personal best. You want to be the best 200 meter breaststroke swimmer in the County, the district, the country. Um, well, that's what I did anyway. That's what I wanted to do. And, you know, the age of 16, I'd done that. And, um, hence been, you know, got the interest, got the opportunity to go and compete in the U S but in the U S they create the, the, the NCAA swim meet is an, is a totally different thing. First of all, you're in a 25 yard swimming pool. So it's fast. Yeah. This is like swimming in a bath compared with Olympic size pool. It's very fast. Um, and you, you know, they have the NCAA dual meet where Georgia State swimming against Georgia Tech, it's head to head, and it's um, each of you know the 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 the, the meet uh, is fast and furious and very competitive and very tactical. Um, you know the the coach, you know he's only got so many swimmers, and we've all got to do more than one event. Um, you know. Uh, and the dynamics and the team camaraderie are totally different to swimming that I'd experienced up to that point. So, yeah, it's sort of um, every aspect of US life to me compared with, I mean, I think it's maybe different today, you know, in terms of, um, as you said, the world is a smaller place today, but it was stark, the contrast between um, attitude to risk, attitude to competition, attitude to you know, in, in sort of outside of sport in, you know, I was into economics, attitude to markets, attitude to, um, you know, political, uh, in politics and in individual freedom, you know, this is in the deep South, you know, there are, um, all kinds of history of politics there, but, you know, one of them was, you know, the second amendment, the right, you know, the right to bear arms, is was and is you know just part of everyday american life i'd mm. never seen a never don't think about it, i'd never seen a gun before i went to before america and the the you know the university on the university campus at georgia state they have their own police force and the police they're not much older than i was and they were carrying guns now you're obviously a very very inquisitive person uh and you mentioned the blog 
that I read, and you put lots of material on on on, on LinkedIn. But a lot of it's macro that I just don't tend to have the brain space for a lot of all this, you know. And you put a lot of stuff out, and I, I'm just wondering. Is it difficult for you to process all this information? And it's okay, you know, talking about it, but I, I meet a lot of private investors and, and they talk about, you know, um, when are we going to come out the, out the bear market and when are inflation rates going to pick? And they spend all this time doing it, but I think, well, how are you applying this to your own investments? So it, yes. can, can, it, can it all get a little bit muddled? You know, uh, I mean, I, I, I sense that you know some private investors they just end up in like a state of paralysis. So um, how, yeah. how, how do you filter it all? No, no, I agree. I think it's um, there's a big risk, and I I I think one of the reasons I wrote started writing the blog was maybe to you know well, there's several reasons, but one of the reasons was that maybe some of the people I know who sometimes ask me about investing their money and, you know, I can take that, take some of the burden off their shoulders and sort of tell them what I think, you know, is going on and where I think things are going so that they can concentrate on the much more important bit. If you're investing in equities, that is, you know, What's a good company? What companies do I like? Where do I think I have a bit of a, an edge in understanding why this business is um, going to be, um, this business opportunity is sustainable and can grow and can compound over time, which I think are the more important element to the, you know, the equation of understanding how to invest in equities. It's picking the right stocks or picking the right fund manager. Um, and, you know, over the my professional uh, years, you know, I watched dozens of institutional investors operate, uh, some of the very, some, but, and some of the very cleverest, some of the best informed aren't always the best investors because you get this sort of um, analysis paralysis. Mm. You can't see the wood from the trees. And, yeah, it's definitely a risk I'm conscious of. Um, but what I've found, um, what I found writing does, it gives me an outlet. So I spent 40 years or certainly the last 25, 30 years writing emails to my clients, you know, uh, at work about what is going on in the world and how they should think about investing in whatever it was the company I was working for at the time had to offer. And I had to try and position these things in the context of the strategy that I knew they were trying to achieve. So I, you know, when I stopped doing that, I found that challenge quite enjoyable. Uh, I needed an outlet. So hence the reason I sort of, I felt like I needed an outlet rather than just reading about what's going on in the world and shouting at the wall. I just thought maybe I, put it down on paper or put it down in, um, put it, post it. Um, but the main reason, you know, the other, the other reason or the reason I've, the, the other reason that I, that I do it is because it helps me organize my thoughts. And when you don't have that discipline of, you know, um, putting your thoughts down in a, in a way that it makes sense for someone else to digest. And particularly when that person or those people, who are going to read it are 
know as much, if not more, about what you're writing about than they, than you do, it makes you bloody careful and it straighten out any sort of wonky thinking, you know. And it might you know, just just before you press that send button or that publish button, you make sure you've thought it through. And you, I find find myself so yeah. It um, uh, sometimes it's a distraction. Sometimes I get to you know i go off on a tangent um uh and my curious sort of my curiosity sort of carries me away in something that you just think well maybe that maybe that's i'm getting a little bit too it's a little bit too inconsequential maybe um but i think also that the the, yeah the other thing though is yeah you when i started this in 2020 you know we're in the middle of lockdown it made macro much more consequential, actually. It made, you know, it's, it, 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 the world became macro, you know, the, um, the, it was, it was like a period from maybe 2010 to 2020. It was, uh, it was all about which stocks you owned, you know, it was, um, I think the period since lockdown, is much more about what are you know what are the policy what what are you know um what are policymakers doing what's the fed doing what are other central banks doing what's you know what's the geopolitics look like um what's the what's the energy what's happening in energy what's happening to inflation you know what's happening to bond yields oops something's broken you know it's 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 been macro driven so I found myself, I guess, not under the constraints of doing a nine to five job for somebody else in a, you know, in a pigeonhole. I guess I, the that's either the risk or the opportunity that you can kind of more roam where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, the podcast that you do in the company of Mavericks, um, which I think for anybody listening is a, an excellent podcast. And it, it's that good. It's nearly as good as mine. Right. <laughs> uh, but I'm just wondering on that, you know, why specifically Mavericks, and you know what? Again, what do you personally, what have you taken from this? What, how does it help, or does it help your process? Uh, yeah, well, it's very nice of you to say so, and it was purely a lockdown hobby interest that I developed, and um, it's um, uh, yeah, a bit like writing the blog. I guess it just sort of um, just another area of um trying to um continue elements of the job that i was doing professionally taking the enjoyable elements out and continuing it in a different form um mavericks well um when i was in atlanta georgia in the late 1970s, early 1980s, there was a guy called, a local hero, a guy called Ted Turner. Oh, yes. Who ran a business called Turner Broadcasting, TBS, Turner Broadcasting Systems. And he owned the local, he owned the Atlanta Braves, the baseball team, and the Atlanta Hawks, the basketball team. He'd inherited from his dad, a bit like Rupert Murdoch, uh, I think, I'd, yeah, he'd, he'd inherited from his dad a um, outdoor advertising business, a 
uh, in Atlanta, and he bought local newspapers and I'm not sure about newspapers. He bought, bought the local TV station, uh, a t- local TV station. He built up because of his ownership of the sports teams. He um, broadcast. He started broadcasting nationally. Um, I think baseball games or sport. He was known for sport. And he had this crazy idea that there could be such a thing as a 24-hour news channel. And there was this new thing called cable television. And he set this thing up called CNN, Cable News Network. And most weeks, the local Atlanta media press headlines were you know, a new update on how close Ted Turner was going, how imminent, how he was going to go into imminent bankruptcy. And this was the end. He'd bet the family ranch literally on uh, this crazy idea that the world could digest news over, you know, continuously. And he put everything into CNN. He'd geared himself up to the eyeballs. He'd done this, he'd done that. And it was just a matter of time. I can't remember all the detail, but of course that didn't happen. And CNN was eventually bought by Time Warner and he became a billion, a multi-billionaire. And he's a maverick. People didn't like him. They were, the the establishment were dead against him because he, he just, you know, never met him, probably wasn't a particularly nice person, but he was definitely a maverick and he, he was right. And um, I think that was quite um, formative uh, and when I fell into the world of small cap investing, the people I gravitated to tended to be the founders of businesses um, who, um, you know, one of the people I came across um, in the early early 2000s was a guy called Jonathan Milner, who had a company called Abcam. Mm. And Jonathan was a... Um, Cambridge research biochemist. He was doing research with antibodies and he had a problem because you, he was doing experiments with and research on different types of antibodies. And he was, um, you know, obviously to, um, to have a scientific experiment, you have, it has to be rep, it has to be replicable. So someone could, disprove your hypothesis and he couldn't get stand he couldn't get a standardized form of an acceptably standardized form of antibody um that was consistent and therefore usable in researching for um uh in the area of biotechnology so he set up his own company where he um basically set up the indexation he set up you know the equivalent of the FTSE 100 for antibodies he indexed them so that they could be replicable and he solved a problem that he had as a research scientist and became a billionaire because that's that was his domain knowledge that was he had knew something about the world that other people didn't really understand as being a problem. He knew it was a big problem and it became a much bigger problem because what do you know, this whole thing at the time was cracking the human genome. And to do that, you needed reliable, falsifiable, 
um, uh, antibodies. Mm. And Abcam is now listed in on NASDAQ. Um, it's few, worth a few billion quid. I think he's probably still got a shareholding. He's not no longer involved in the management of the business, I don't think. Um, I don't think he's even still on the board. Um, but that's exactly the type of character that I think is underappreciated by a world that wants to understand things as being normal. Mm. It's interesting that we're in a world that increasingly, if you look at the corporate world, we want people working to set operating procedures. We we love mavericks, though, don't we? There's just something about it's like almost a kind of any 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 detective uh, (laughs) subplot is the hero. He's not somebody who's assiduously completing his paperwork and putting his reporting on time, is he? He's like his life's in chaos, and he's a yeah. He's not doing things by the book, you know. It's 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 interesting that we are we like to buy into these type of people, don't we? Well, yeah, we do in fiction, but I think increase maybe I, I don't know, but I just think in in the real world we sort of don't allow ourselves to believe it. Mm. Maybe I don't know, but I you know, um, I but you know it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily follow just because you're a maverick, you're going to be a successful business, businessman. But if you want to be um, a very successful, you know, if you want to be the most successful business, you know, the most successful business people are atypically represented by mavericks. I mean, think of Jeff, Jeff Bezos. You know, everyone thought he was crazy, you know, to sell books online. Um, uh, you know, Elon Musk, you know, these are not normal people. Mm. Perhaps it's that they're going to either, if you're a maverick, you're going to either succeed or fail gloriously. That's perhaps yeah. what it is. Yeah. 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 But the, so, so yeah, there are other things that, so yeah, you don't, it's, it's, um, it's not a catch all term. You know, it doesn't, as I say, but it, you know, I think these, and not all the people I interview, you would regard, you know, have the classic, maverick personalities but it's about having deep domain knowledge and a focus and a and and a focus on an area and a strong sense of a strong sense of purpose and um they create a culture of um this sort of culture of being you know, from from being outsiders so you know they 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 get a cohesive team around them of around this maverick culture but it's also it becomes their life work so they they end up being quite big shareholders in these businesses that become listed and that they 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 then hopefully develop or if they don't you know it's it's identifiable that they don't but it, 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 they get a, a sense of cap- of how to allocate capital. You know, their, their capital is at risk. You know, it's coming back to this. Don't ask people what they should be, what what they think you should be doing. What are you doing? Where's your money? You know, I've, yeah, some of these people, you know, the, the, these people I would term mavericks. You know, these founders of businesses. You know, I don't know. Say they're running a hundred million market cap company. Say they own twenty percent of it. So they got twenty million quid at risk. And they've taken out a bit of money on the way. Say they've got another five million quid managed for them by a, you know, professionally by a wealth manager. 
they worry far more about the five million quid than they do the twenty million quid. They know what's going on in the twenty million quid. Mm. They, that's their world. They they know all. The, you know, they think long and hard about it. They don't put that at risk. You know, they're they're, they're rational if they're rational actors, or you know, it doesn't always work. But it it adds. You know, if you if you're backing a founder of a business, you're changing the odds because you're you're backing someone who's got real skin in the game. Yeah. Right. Well, you're here on the island, Jeremy, and you're more than welcome to share what we can offer. Paul and I can offer in the in the form of shelter and fire, and as long as you're okay with a, a strict fruit and seafood diet, then you'll be okay. But uh, <laughs> just. As an exchange, uh, in exchange for that, we ask that you share one or more of your conviction holds with us and give us the investment case. So I'm just wondering if that's something you can do. Okay, yeah. Um, so I met a company called Four Imprint. Um, I met the management. He was uh, the London-based management at the time, probably around 2010 uh, and was um, blown away by what I heard. Um, And one of the reasons I was blown away by what I heard is because I knew a little bit about the background of the business. For those people with long stock market um, memories, um, for imprint, was born out of the ashes of a company called Bemrose Corporation, which you probably knew in your day in the paper industry. Yeah, that's right. We, we used to I used to sell them some paper. Or the company I did used to, they were into um, check paper. So they made they printed among other things they printed checkbooks, mm. um, which um, not surprisingly didn't have a, a prosperous future ahead of it. And, um, but as a lot of these old print and paper and packaging businesses had, they, they were, they also had with tied around their neck, um, quite a large pension fund liability, but as luck would have it along the way before the check printing business got into trouble, a previous management team had made a series of acquisitions. And one of the companies they had bought was a um, promotional products business in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Can't say that. That's easy for you to say. Not with my teeth in. Uh, or not. Um, and um, for imprint happened to be a gem of a business that I don't know, but I strongly suspect the management team that bought it didn't really understand quite how strong and durable business for imprint actually was. But for imprint was a business that has and continues to disrupt the markets it serves. And it basically serves the American appetite for affiliation with other organizations. So when I lived in the States, one of the things that became apparent was that if you went to Georgia State University or Georgia Tech University or the University of Georgia or Emory University, which is also in Atlanta, or you belong to a church and there are hundreds of churches or a synagogue in 
in the Atlanta area or you were affiliated to whoever or whatever, you wore a T-shirt, you wore a badge, you had a coffee cup, you had a baseball cap, and they, you carried the affiliation with you proudly. And you see this today in every aspect of American life. They don't know why, but they do. They, they want to identify with the, the organizations that they are employed by, they worship at, they play you know, their sports teams, their high schools, everything. And there's a very strong industry. It's a very promotion, promotional product. Serving this market is a very fr- disparate and fragmented market where there are suppliers and agents. And typically it comes down to, or it used to come down to, and I think to a certain extent it still does, where there's a... Um, you know, there's a mom and pop business and, you know, there's a, they go, they go and visit or they have local, um, customers and there's a big supply chain where the big manufacturers feed the product down to these small distributors for imprint totally stood that model on its head, uh, or has done over a number of years. And basically, um, Kevin Lyons Tarr, who's the C- CEO and been the CEO there for 30 years, joined the business as a, he was previously a technology guy, a technology salesman, and um, someone who understood how the adoption of technology can drive efficiency in a business. And he's basically taken for imprint and developed it into a business that serves this market it's quite a low gross margin business low single digit it's not on the face of it an attractive business because you're basically a distributor you're taking product uh, say a white t-shirt printing or um, embroidering a logo on it and shipping it out so you're it's low value add um, but they managed to do it in with a model in what i would say is a drop ship model from their suppliers which means they effectively carry no stock. It's a rapid turnover, very high service level, low order value business um, where they're delivering, you know, they're, they're, they're looking after um, hundreds of thousands of orders a year. I think it's over a million in um, recent times. And they do this with ruthless efficiency um, and they are able to compare completely um so that their gross to net profitability is exceptional and because they have no working capital in the business their return on investment is way way um i mean it's 30 40 percent it's way up there it's off the clock Mm. and they currently this business has grown consistently over the last 10 years uh, I'm going to say when I bought the shares, they were three or four pounds. Today, they're between 45 and 50 pounds. Um, they've never issued any further equity. I don't think they've ever issued equity. They're very cash generative. Um, they control their own destiny in terms of turning up and turning down their marketing spend. And they've they've filled the void of where Bemrose Corporation was before its demise. They've 
Um, and I think it's one of the interesting aspects of the market. You know, these um, uh, what you know, these sort of um, companies that become other companies they 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 grow out they they're, they're the offspring unwanted offspring of other companies i'm not saying um for imprint was an unwanted offspring it's but it's i'm thinking of um howard and joinery howard like and joinery howard yeah. and joinery thank you for my, filling my dreadful memory you know um which grew out of the demise of magnet and southern i think or no mfi 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 pretty sure it was do you MFI. remember them yeah. 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 Mission effing impossible. Is <laughs> made for idiots. <laughs> made for idiots. Yeah. Um I, I I digress. But I mean, you know, the the unwanted children of companies, um, what's the other one? Agreco. Do you remember Agreco? Oh yes, the the power generators, aren't they? External yeah. power generators. Do you remember like Christian Sal- Christian Salverson? Which they was were a, trans- a shipping company, weren't they? Transport company, and the biggest single factor in their profitability was the pea harvest, because they used to ship peas from Lincolnshire for um, uh, to bird's eye, right, okay. and um, they had this un- this thing called a Greco, which grew like a weed, but no one really understood. And Christian Salverson is no more. I don't know what happened to it, but. Um, Everyone, you know, but Greco was a very successful business uh, in the area of power generation. So I would say Four Imprint is is the unwanted child of Bemrose, and unusually, um, been through an accident of history, you've got this amazing business, U.S. business, but based in this weird place called Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Mm. I shouldn't say it weird. I've never been there, but I, I know. Uh, um, uh, it's lately, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, um, uh, it's a different, very different uh, part of the world. And as luck would have it, this guy who runs the business today and is very successfully growing the business, um, still only has a market share of these addressable market, single digit percent. He can continue to grow this business at these unlikely levels Mm. uh for many years to come and um the shares have like everything derated massively and i'm not suggesting to you or any of your listeners that should go out and buy these shares but i think that um that's um i've had a long association with this company and it's developed deep conviction that they know what they're doing and they're in um sort of very much control of their own destiny. And I have no intention of becoming a smaller shareholder in the business anytime soon. Yeah, well, I would imagine if you've you've paid three or four pounds for it, there's a lot of goodwill there on your part anyway. Um, I'm just looking at, uh, you know, it's very asset light. They've only got about, you know, I'm looking at, I've looked at the 2021 report, they've only got about just slightly over 1,200 employees. Interesting that 98% of it is, the revenue is North American, just less than two percent UK and Ireland. But you know, just I'm tr- I'm trying to find the the Achilles heel here, and I I, I look through even whatever what, what about a pension deficit? That's in surplus, and that's pa- the, paid the, off, the, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, they're looking for that to, to potentially buy that out. But yeah, you know, if you look at the if you look at the, I was thinking about the film Alien, where uh, Ripley says to Ash, 
you know, how do we kill it? And he said, well, you, <laughs> you can't. It's the perfect organism. And I, I'm just thinking, is this the perfect business? Or, where, you know, where can it run aground? Where, where, can, you know, what, where can the malt disappear and what, what could go wrong? Well, yeah, I think I wouldn't underestimate, you know, the passion and the commitment of Kevin and his team in Oshkosh um, that makes this business tick every day. But Kevin is not the founder of this business, but he he talks like he is. I don't mean that in a arrogant way. It's he deeply um, understands the importance of culture. He understands the risks in the business and he manages them very effectively. doesn't mean he'll always get it right. And, you know, um, the, it looks like the U.S. economy is probably heading for a, a weaker patch and spend on these items is possibly some stage in the future will again. He's been through, you know, I've ridden through several downturns with him. Um, it, 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 you know, it's a business where you can set the sales for a storm once it starts very effectively because you just cut down the marketing spend and the cash comes in. Um, so he, he's got that sort of self-stabilizing mechanism built in. Uh, it doesn't mean the share price doesn't go down. It just means that, you know, things will get better. When things get better, it'll be a bigger, stronger business because his competitors, uh, many of his competitors, smaller competitors, will, won't be able to survive the storm. Uh, so you've got that on your side. Um, what I was concerned about, you know, coming out of lockdown with, particularly with the geopolitics as it is, a lot of what he, the products that his suppliers supply him or his, that go straight through to his customers, a lot of the product originates or did originate in China. You know, these are all manner of, I don't know, key fobs, T-shirts, polo shirts, holdalls, jackets, anything that, you know, can have a logo on it, basically. A lot of these products, you know, his supply chain starts in other parts of the world, It's um, and particularly China. So, I th- yeah, I, there were moments in the recent past where I felt, yeah, maybe there's going to be a problem here. But touch wood, so far... He's managed it very well. They've diversified their supplier base and hasn't been an issue. But yeah, it's not a straightforward business to run. Otherwise, we'd all be doing it mm. um, by any sense. Uh, but he's got this, I think he's genuinely got this network capability. I think it's benefits from being this sort of perverse situation of being a high quality US business that happens to be listed in the UK because I honestly don't think most UK investors really understand this attraction of affiliation that Americans have and why mm. it's, it's not a free, you know, we think, you know, if you, you know, um, promotional products, you know, you get these cheap pens in a reception of a, somewhere you go and you chuck it in the bin, you know, the, Ameri- the, the, the this is different, you know, it's, it's all about being affiliated it's the same, but it's different. You know, in, in the eyes of the Ameri- in the American market, it's different, and they 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 have this affiliation that runs through them. This this desire to be affiliated with um, uh, organizations. 
Yeah. Well, what a great podcast. Jeremy, all I can say is thanks for joining us today. I've really enjoyed our conversation, uh, talking about your investing journey and those specific investments that you're involved in. Um, where should people look to follow the continued adventures of Jeremy McEwen? <laughs> um, well, if they're so inclined, they can. If you want to read about what I think about what's going on in the world, uh, then I write a blog um, that's called Hypernormal Times, uh, and that's at hypernormaltimes.com. Uh, if you're interested in podcasts and listening to interesting people uh, with interesting stories to tell about, their business life and the businesses they run, then it's in the company of Mavericks and you can listen to that on any sort of any, your, any podcast platform. Uh, both the blog and the podcast is also hosted at progressive equity media, uh, progressive equity research, uh, they, um, which um, also offers um, uh, sponsored research um, uh, um which and so that's uh, an interesting site to visit, in my opinion. Uh, and I'm always posting stuff on LinkedIn, so it's just Jeremy McEwen on LinkedIn. But thank you for having me on the podcast, Mark. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope I haven't rambled on too much. No, it's been fantastic. I've, I've uh, enjoyed sharing your company, and um, I'm looking forward to the swim home. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Cheers. Okay, take care. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And a big thank you to Jeremy. If you'd like to swim back to the mainland and join me here in Stockbroker's Bar, I'll buy you a drink. No question in a bottle this time, but if you do want to ask Mark a question, please post it in the comments, and hopefully it'll reach the island in time for the next episode. As usual, please remember... All the information on this podcast is for information only and it is not financial advice. Anyway, I have some Cuba Libra lined up on the bar for me. So I'd just like to say thanks for listening and see you next time.